I, I want to take the opportunity now to um, introduce a gentleman that I have come to know over the last two years. Um, you know, as we all know, we had a very vibrant um, election cycle uh, for the 2014 election. And I had the opportunity while on the campaign trail to, to meet Tom Tillis. I, you know, there again, in North Carolina, North Carolina po uh, politics, you kind of see people, you get to know people, you shake a lot of hands, but you don't necessarily get to know them well. I had the opportunity to meet and, and really get to know Tom and his, and his wonderful, beautiful wife, um, Susan, who was out on the campaign trail just as much as he is. He was out at one end of, of North Carolina, Susan was out on the other, and she did a fabulous job. She is, she's an amazing woman. And Tom, you know, what I've learned over time is one, he's an American success story. You know, he's someone that brought himself up through the, through the channels on his own and made it to the top. You know, becoming part of, of an incredible leadership team at Price Waterhouse Coopers and really a leader there, but then moving on to the, uh, to the House of Representatives in North Carolina, coming to the forefront, changing the majority from Democrat to Republican, I think what, in the House, it was over, there was at least over 20 years before they had had the majority. But then of course, winning the majority in the Senate as well, put Republicans in North Carolina in the forefront, and that was really the first time since Reconstruction. I mean, we, we've seen a, a real transformative time in North Carolina, and Tom was part of that. As Speaker of the House in, in the North Carolina House, he really led his, his other fellow members. He was a voice of leadership, he was a voice of strength. One of the things that I've learned, uh, we are working on some efforts right now together, um, representing Fort Bragg, that's a huge responsibility for me. And we have some issues there um, with a dismantling of the 440th airlift wing that we feel very strongly is, is a little short-sighted um, in that initiative uh, by the Air Force. So we've been working closely on that. He's so sensible and pragmatic. And I just think that he is going to be a huge leader in the Senate moving forward. I know that we will continue to work together on so many different issues. And I just really, um, I welcome the opportunity for all of you to get to know Tom. And with that, please, um, let's welcome Tom Phillips. Thank you all. Good morning. Thank you, Renee. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'll try and keep my comments brief and then happy to answer any questions. I, um, I was just, when I was in the... Uh, and the line getting some food, I mentioned to somebody I was glad to be back in D.C. where I could get some rest because <laughs> things move a little bit slowly here. Uh, there's, uh, <clears throat> when you're out in the, uh, out in the field, uh, things move a little bit more quickly. Certainly when you're in the legislature, they move pretty quickly. I know the staff are all running around, but we go, uh, we go into the chamber. Brian asked me earlier how I thought the vote was going to go today. I said, I have no earthly idea. Uh, because you don't really know. There are just so many things going on. Uh, I do believe, though, that uh, we'll have the support for TPA. And hopefully, in the House, we can work to get the support. You know, there's only been, uh, I guess, Richard Nixon's the only president since Roosevelt who hasn't had TPA. 
if we don't take the opportunity to get TPA now, we won't have it if we have a Republican president in 2017. It'll be structurally impossible to get it done. And this is a six-year agreement, so I hope everybody, you know, I come from a state where uh, trade agreements were devastating in the short term. Uh, but we ultimately have to get them done if we really want to be a serious global player in, uh, in trade. So hopefully we'll be able to get the folks together. The House reminds the House, I'm still kind of a House person, having been in the, in the uh, North Carolina legislature. It's a little bit crazier, a little bit uh, harder to kind of get things lined up. But I have a great affinity for House members, and particularly Renee and the work that she's doing over there. Um, the, uh, the Senate, uh, I was asked to talk a little bit about my thoughts on the Senate. I, and uh, I usually get the question of what surprises you most about the Senate. Um, the, I think it's the understanding when you get here that the absolute finite capacity of the Senate. In, in North Carolina, you were only limited by how long you were going to make people work and how many days a week. And you could use that sheer threat to get a lot more done by Thursday afternoon. If you made it clear to them you'd work all the way through Saturday night, if that's what it took to get what you wanted to get done that week. You don't really have that device here as a leader. There's a finite capacity, and the minority does a masterful job of burning every single minute of daylight if they're trying to slow things down or, or prevent you from moving forward very quickly. So it really means that you have to be disciplined and spend a lot of time stacking up the things that are most important just so that you can make progress. And I know it's maddening to the House. Um, to see just how slowly things move. But I also believe it's necessary. Uh, I think it would be very, very dangerous in America that moved as quickly as we did in North Carolina would be dangerous. Now, I'm glad we moved quickly in North Carolina, but we have the safety net of the federal government if we make a real mistake. And we also have the reference points of 49 other states to kind of guide us around uh, any major issues. So. To me, it's necessary, but it's also a little bit maddening when you really want to get some of these obvious things done. Uh, just by way of update, and, uh, for the good work that we did down in North Carolina, I have to congratulate my governor and my legislators down there. We left them with a $400 million surplus on the uh, general fund budget. That's after we cut $2 billion in annual taxes over the last three years. Uh, we also... So paid off about two years early a $2.7 billion debt to the federal government. We paid off in 24 months $2.7 billion to the federal government for unemployment benefits. The reason we were able to do that is one of the tough, when you talk about entitlement reform, it's one thing to talk about it, it's another thing to do it. And in North Carolina, we cut the, uh, we refused to take the last tranche of the unemployment benefit extension. That had been another automatic 26 weeks for folks who were on unemployment. We not only did that, we cut the monthly benefit by about 25%. And we reduced the duration from 26 weeks to a sliding scale based on the prevailing rate of unemployment from about nine to 13 weeks, as much as 20 in, in a chronic uh, period. But we were able to use that to plow the money back in, and now we're going to have a dramatic reduction in federal unemployment taxes and state unemployment taxes. I tell you all, for those of you who have clients in North Carolina, tell them that's good news, because that's about $280 million in business savings uh, next year and about $700 million in uh, about three years out. 
going right back into business. It's the effect of another tax decrease. And our surplus was so great uh, that those who are subject to corporate taxes are about to get another percentage reduction going from 5 to 4%. When we got there, it was 6.9% corporate tax rate. And the, and the income taxes have gone from 7.75 to 5.75. We've done serious things in the state, much of which needs to be done up here if we're really going to get back to sustained positive economic performance. But we've also got this problem with the president down there that never saw a tax reform. He doesn't think of tax reform as anything more than a revenue grab of about a half a trillion dollars. That's why tax reform can't happen in a meaningful way over the next two years because I don't think that there's any Republican that will vote for a tax increase. Um, but I do think that we have a lot of progress. We, we have opportunities to make moderate progress over the next 18 months if we're smart, if we reach across the aisle, recognize what we are capable of doing, and work with our colleagues in the House to understand that our the scope of what we try to do always has to be tinted with enough movement to get sufficient numbers of Democrats to support it. Just got to happen. Or another way of looking at it, when the House looks at what the Senate's doing, ask yourself, how could I get 261 House members to vote on this bill? Roughly the percentage equivalent of uh, 60 votes. Or how can I get 290 votes to override a veto? Suddenly, the hill that we have to climb in the Senate doesn't seem so challenging. So I think that that's, those are almost unachievable numbers on the House side. Um, let's see, I think uh, going back to energy exploration, boy, I hope that we see Keystone Pipeline a couple more times in some kind of bills. I can't wait to get to the appropriations process so that we can start making some progress on regulatory reform. I think that the leader, and I hope that the House agrees that we can fund certain sections of, of the, uh, the government, leave it up to the president, decide whether or not he wants to shut them down if he finds some of the regulatory reform provisions that will be in the way of appropriations riders to uh, allow them to go into law. Working a lot on trying to deal with waters of the U.S. and uh, enough, or the, uh, the, air, the new air quality standards and some of the other things that we think are devastating and very destabilizing to get providing businesses with any kind of certainty when you see the huge swings you could have in energy costs and a number of other things. We're going to have to take it slowly though, a lot slower than I want to. But I do think we'll make progress and I lay a lot of the uh, responsibility for the progress we're making on the leadership. Speaker Boehner and Mitch McConnell have a bear of a task. And I know a little bit about it, having been a Speaker of the House and had a Democrat governor and didn't have a supermajority. So I've made it clear to my leadership that right now I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I'm not a problem when you need to get that 60th vote to get some of these foundational things done, like the budget. We needed the budget. The budget's just a parameters document. A lot of people can spend a lot of time worrying about what's in the budget, but it lays the groundwork for so many other things that we need to do. Those sort of foundational things are things that I won't think twice about supporting the leadership on. Until they give me a good reason not to, and right now they're impressing me as leaders of both of the chambers. Um, so I think uh, for those of you that are asked, the, the press asked me, for those of you who may have an interest in North Carolina or may think that for whatever reason, because of my staff or because of my, my professional background, uh, that uh, you have suggestions for me, keep them simple. 
I told everybody, I told the press a couple of weeks ago, my goal is to, to be defined as one of the most effective and intensely boring members of the U.S. <laughs> While everybody else is chasing the shiny objects that are always going to be questionable whether or not you can get it done, I want the singles and doubles. I want the things that you can put in regulatory reform measures, things that make an impact. They're not necessarily going to get you on TV, but they will actually get you to a point to where over time it will have an enormously positive impact on the business climate. I saw it in North Carolina, four straight years of regulatory reform. So why we, we're, we're third now in CEO Magazine is the most business friendly climate. We weren't even in the top 10 a few years ago. 14, or from 44th to 16th in tax burden because we systematically reduced the tax burden. From fourth to now below the national average on unemployment. Very few of those were done with home runs. They were done with a series of bills that, in, in the aggregate, had an enormously positive impact on North Carolina. That's the sort of stuff I want to work on now as a freshman. And then support all the big bills that the senior members will run and run, and I'll just go in there and try and make them better through suggestions on amendments, or through measures that are just simply focused on these singles and doubles. Uh, last thing, there's some folks in the room that I've seen for the past couple of years. Some of them supported me early in the campaign, and I appreciate it. Uh, it was a close race, but uh, I had a person in the press say, at what point did you think you were going to win? I said, the day I filed. <laughs> With somebody actually going to a race where you knew over $100 million was going to be spent, you were going to be absolutely bludgeoned and say, hey, maybe we'll even win. <laughs> so, but I was convinced that we were going to win because we did the homework here to gain the support. And I knew that if the, the, those who had pledged support to us came through, that we would have the funding and we would have the broad base of support that we needed to win. So the outcome was not at all a surprise to me. In fact, losing would have been a big surprise. Uh, but now I want to get up here and work with the leadership and work to make this Congress function again, get rid of the dysfunction, get rid of some of the partisanship, and get the country back on track. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Congresswoman Elmers, you did such a great job with your introduction. You can either have the first question or the last question. Okay, okay, but can I'll tell you what? Can I ask Tom to? Um, I'll start with with Tom. I'm going to ask you a question. Can you just tell everyone here about how you kind of made it up through North Carolina, starting back when when you decided to go to school and oh, yeah. you know, what your experiences? Because I just Again, you are an American success story. And actually, the, the folks rep representing Price Waterhouse, you may be able to help uh, answer a question that I don't know the answer to. But I, uh, I went to high school in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, graduated 14th out of the class, about 500 kids, American Legion Boys State, Honor Society, Beta Club, President of the Student Body. Did go to college, went to work in a warehouse. Uh, I grew up in a family of six kids. Three of us got high school diplomas. Two ended up getting GEDs, one never graduated, neither of my parents graduated from high school. Uh, so we were in this sort of, you go to high school, you get a degree, then you go to work. I was gonna go into the Air Force. I'd actually been in delayed entry. I, I uh, swore the oath to the Air Force and to the country in January of 1978, had an auto, and it was off for delayed entry for uh, June of that year, a month before that, had an automobile accident, got an honorable discharge had to have hand surgery and other things. So I found myself working in a warehouse and uh, 
About six months into it, I realized I'd done something horribly stupid. Uh, you know, I should have leveraged all that I had going for me to go to school. There's no question I could have gotten a scholarship. Um, but that was just not our way of life. So over the course of 30, or over the course of 19 years, I went to two technical schools, Nashville State, Chattanooga State, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, Georgia State University, and ultimately University of Maryland, University College. At the age of 37, I got my degree. I was admitted to the partnership at the age of 36, about a year and a half before my degree at Price Waterhouse. And um, the question to the PW people, I just don't know how many non-degree people have made partner, but I need to get that. It may be a, it may be a good number. I never met it. Yeah. <laughs> I never met anybody. I'm sure there were one or two back in the day. But, uh, but no, it was just uh, because I focused on uh, high-tech sector, I was able to be, to be fair uh, in the, uh, the mid-80s, mid-90s. My career moved up so quickly in terms of comp. It never made business sense for me to quit my job and go back to school full-time. So I raised a couple of kids and I uh, got the degree. And then, then I moved in. The, the, the reason I got, the reason I'm here right now really is because of a mountain bike trip. I'm an avid uh, single-track mountain biker and I went, when I moved down from uh, Northern Virginia to, to uh, Charlotte, I uh, did a typical management consulting proposal to the town of Cornelius to try and use 20-acre track of land that they had that was not planned for development to create an uh, environmentally sustainable single-track mountain bike trail. They hoodwinked me and said, that's a great presentation. You know, if you come and uh, volunteer on this Park and Rec Advisory Board, you probably got a good chance of getting that done. Uh, so a year and a half I was there, uh, and I was fighting for that trail. Didn't get it. There was a guy, particularly problematic person on the town council that I came across because I was trying to get an at-risk uh, youth and seniors facility built in the town for pennies on the dollar, the way we'd structured it with a nonprofit. He killed it because he said it wasn't the appropriate role of government. He was a conservative who went on to, into the legislature. And uh, two years later, four years later, after a two-year stint on the town board and then a one-year stint as president of a PTA, I challenged a two-term Republican incumbent to, uh, to go into the legislature in 2006. We beat him by a two-to-one margin. And I came in as a freshman. We were in the minority. And uh, I worked really hard to build relationships with what I thought were conservative Democrats to, uh, to get to work, but I also focused on the organizational dysfunction of our Republican caucus. Why on earth could we not get a majority? Or why on earth couldn't we function as a, as a solid minority? Proposed management consulting uh, proposal for a, a written plan of organization, an organizational structure. Basically, we created a framework of committees and policy making in the minority that got these people to thinking about what it would be like if we got into the majority. And I did that at the end of my freshman term and was elected the, uh, the whip, which is the, uh, the second position in the minority caucus for leadership. And then also ran our finance committee and our campaign committee. We, we, we outraised by a quarter or five times the prior elections in terms of money. We caught the Democrats sleeping. Uh, we recruited really good candidates, and we went from 68-52 Democrat to 68-52 Republican. At the end of my, my uh, sophomore term, I was elected speaker. And then from there, same thing, management consulting. We limited the number of bills that, man, that, a Republican, that members could file to no more than 10 every two-year period. 
because we were pretty certain that no one of them were going to have more than 10 good ideas <laughs> over a two-year period. Uh, we also cut a third of all the standing committees. And the prior speaker said, you're going to run this place into the ground. It's going to be gridlocked. We had the shortest legislative session since 1973 and more bills ratified in a given session than any other session over that period of time. Think about fewer things, get more things done. So that was that's sort of my career and uh, my leadership resume in a nutshell. And I really would like to find out about that PW partner question. <laughs> Memo to follow. Any other questions? Senator, you've uh, mentioned uh, you want to work across the aisle. Obviously, you've only been here a couple of months. Are there any members that you've started to bond with on the other side, find sort of common ground to work with? Yeah, you know, and they're all, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, had my staff reaching out to all the minority members, save one or two. Um, <laughs> you got to use your time wisely. Uh, but, uh, but I've, I've met with people who run the, the, the political gambit. I've, I've, I've met with uh, Senator Merkley. And yeah, I'm convinced probably we only got 20% overlap on things that ideologically would let us work together. Uh, Senator Coons, Warner, Manchin, Heidkamp, Tester, uh, Kane, uh, they're all people that I've proactively reached out to to find things. Well, for example, in Virginia, I've got to believe that uh, uh, offshore drilling, that's an area where we can potentially work together. Uh, there's a pipeline coming in from uh, through Virginia down into North Carolina on energy issues. So find the things where maybe the state's interest and the constituents in those states may trump the jersey you're wearing and work on those sorts of issues. It's exactly what I did in North Carolina. Um, and, and you know, you got to build relationships. I think one of the things that I've noticed in the Senate is the, the lack of Except for the, the floor relate, everybody's very friendly on the floor, but it's not clear to me how many of them actually spend time at a personal level outside of the chamber. And we need to get back to that kind of work. And I think that the president is creating the opportunity for it. I even think on the, on, on the Iran deal, I, I see a growing sense of unease among some of the members on where the president may be willing to go on this deal. Use that as an opportunity to get people to work together. Um, and that, for my part, that's what I'm doing, really encouraging the other, uh, other members in the, uh, in the freshman conference and, and others just to go out there and build relationships. You know, if nothing else, if you like somebody, you're far less likely to throw bombs at them. So even if you disagree and you're going to have debates on the floor, I had a great uh, experience with uh, Sheldon Whitehouse. I, I don't see me and Sheldon working directly together on a lot of things, maybe a few. But uh, I've spent time building a relationship with him and back when we were uh, doing the budget on the floor, I think it was during Votorama, he had a series of amendments and he and I built a pretty good relationship. I was sitting back in the chamber uh, next to him where he was sitting, he just finished speaking and we were doing one of his amendments. And we were going around talking, having a great time and all of a sudden my name came up on the roll call tell us, I said, sorry about this. No, <laughs> and then moved on with the discussion. But I think, you know, he said, what a travesty. Just kind of joked and moved on. But, I, you know, I really, I think that uh, that's what we have to do. I mean, that's what you, that's, it's incumbent on us to do those sorts of things. And then you may find a few scales tip. But you also have to know what the, you have to understand their states. 
and whether or not I had as the Speaker of the House and as the whip in my second term, I never had a whip discussion. I never threatened anybody into voting any certain way. <clears throat> I can't imagine any successful whip actually operating that way, although I'm sure some try. I would always tell people, look, three things, and I'm just here to talk about three things. Is your conscience driving you to this vote, or your constituents driving you to this vote? If either of the two are, don't care what your caucus thinks. Vote that way. Well, it, it, similarly, if you understand these states where some of the moderate, more moderate members or members that may vote with us on one matter or another, whether or not they're even moderate, if you really understand their states and you can have that discussion, then I think you're in a much better position to build some bipartisan cooperation on things that we can get done. There's plenty we should be able to get done on a bipartisan basis and not swing for the fences knowing we're not going to hit the ball. So have you given any thought on entitlements and how that could I think that, uh, that what I would consider meaningful entitlement reform will have to happen under a new president. The political exposure that comes with entitlement reform without seeing it play out so that you can silence the critics by, by the reality of the policy. Um, you have to have that environment in place. This president would not, it, just as this president will not allow meaningful tax reform so that you can simplify things. Even if we were just talking about simplifying, keep the revenue where it is, maybe not even cut where some of us may want to be, this president's not prepared to do that. So why on earth would you go through all the challenges of doing tax reform in, in the way that I describe it? Now, we will do tax reform, probably small R changing a few things over the next year or two. Uh, but big R reform, where you're broadening the base, lowering the rate, working on exceptions, exemptions, those sorts of things, not going to happen. Entitlement reform, the same thing. Um, we did, I, I consider uh, unemployment, what we did in North Carolina, is a form of entitlement. We were the only state in the nation that didn't extend long-term unemployment. So it was a huge exposure to this. But I knew that we were going to be able to implement it in a time frame where if what we believed would happen happened, then we'd be just fine. And that's exactly what happened. Most precipitous uh, drop in unemployment, paying off the, uh, the debt to the federal government, that's a non-issue now. Now there are a lot of other states, so right now I'm looking around at the other states and what their balances are. There's probably a lot of other states that, you know, we really wish we'd done it in that cycle. Uh, in a way, I'm glad they didn't because it, it better positions North Carolina against our, our Southeast colleagues, but that was meaningful entitlement reform. Uh, but we had that opportunity to know that it was going to go into law and we could point to the benefits. Here, some of those big R reforms are going to be vetoed by this president. He's already made it clear that he's not going to allow it to happen, and even worse, we'll have an election cycle next year that would have all the hypothetical bad outcomes that may have occurred from it that I don't believe if you do it right will. So that's a, a lot of these big R reforms I think are 2017 if we either have a Democrat president who's really committed to turning this country around or a Republican president that we can work very closely with. Appreciate your position on trade and knowing that it's such a charged uh, issue in the state. How are you talking about it uh, back in Rome? Uh, I, I tell them that, look, you've got to look at what's happening globally. If, if we 
have an isolationist mentality with regard to building relationships with our trading partners, the vacuum will be filled by China in a heartbeat. It, they already are making moves around. We're playing checkers with the TPA discussion and maybe TPP, and they're playing chess throughout the globe. This is the best opportunity that we have to really stem that tide. And I go back and I tell everyone, look, NAFTA, NAFTA absolutely decimated certain areas of North Carolina, particularly in textiles and furniture. We're, we recovered. And a part of that was because we really didn't have that diversified of an economy back then. So that trade agreement happened to impact us in a very negative way. There are some deep scars and wounds in North Carolina over that. There's a few people who are friends of mine who are concerned with the Trade Promotion Authority. Um, there are ones who share uh, Senator Portman's concerns, as do I, around currency manipulation, but I think that there are, we can take steps to get to there outside of the TPA. And uh, we just have to go have those honest discussions. I, I believe this is one of those things, if we do it, that over a reasonably short period of time, we'll see the benefits of it because it happens to be one of the few issues that the President and the new majorities in the Congress are on the same page with. But if we miss this opportunity, there will be no TPA for the next President, and we will fall very far behind in terms of trade over the next six years. Senator, uh, you have, uh, I'm about to talk to the Congresswoman about this this afternoon. <clears throat> you have a physician in Apex, North Carolina, who's one of the leaders <clears throat> in the nation in thinking through how small physician practices can survive in the heavily regulated system that the president has put in place. Uh, he's very thoughtful. He's a remarkable guy. He's having influence nationally. But uh, you, you and your staff need to know about him so that we can uh, change the law so that health savings accounts can make payments to these kinds of plans, and ultimately, Medicaid and Medicare should, should be free to do that as well. So I'll talk to your staff more about that in detail. His name is Dr. Forrest, Brian Forrest. And he'll be in, he, he's a, a great guy. He saves 40% in overhead by not taking insurance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Provides um, remarkable care. It's, a, it's really the ultimate in patient-centeredness and getting the government out so uh, it's, a, it's an initiative worth knowing about. It's growing in other states, Washington, Florida, Georgia. So um, it's one that I'm intent on following and supporting so that we can go forward in health with at least some of the pieces that have always made our system remarkable. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I know, uh, I think y'all were saying Bill Cassidy, Dr. Cassidy, Dr. Senator Cassidy. Um, <laughs> Uh, is going to come here and talk about uh, health care reform. You know, I have that, that's an area where my position on when we should provide the uh, Republican solution has changed. I was one of the people beating the table saying we need to get out there and get it out now. Um, but now I, I actually see some wisdom in coming closer to when the King v. Burwell decision is made because there's no certainty uh, which side the uh, Supreme Court's gonna come down on it. Whatever we do in the interim is going to have challenges. This is trying to take, uh, this is trying to manage our way out of a crisis that was created by this, this thing, this monster we call the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. But the last thing we would want to do is 
put forth a transition strategy that some people would say, well, this is the Republican solution. This is not the Republican solution. This is a solution to working through a transition that could take a year and a half or two years to fully implement to get people off of the Affordable Care Act, back onto private policies, et cetera. So I'm now in that camp saying we got to have one. It's got to be timed well with the decision, particularly if it goes against the federal government. And, and we have to be prepared to roll it out. We also have to be prepared to work with states uh, who may be tempted to take what the president would offer them, which would further entrench Obamacare. But it's something that I think uh, we're rightly waiting a little bit before we roll that out. And all that kind of weaves into health care reform that makes sense. Drive the cost and complexity of it. Never ceases to amaze me. A billion dollars in North Carolina was spent for a system that does nothing but track Medicaid payments. One billion dollars that does nothing but track Medicaid payments. If that doesn't suggest an inherent uh, level of complexity in Medicaid, I don't know what does. There have got to be better ways to do it, free up more money to provide care and less money to provide the system. One last question. Go ahead. Yeah, Go ahead, Brian. Uh, as someone who drives home to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, every couple weekends, um, I'm very familiar with highway frustrations. <laughs> um, I-95 Expressway certainly helps, um, but you know, throughout the state and other states, that's a big issue. Uh, just a couple thoughts on highway reform, trust fund issues. Well, a, a part of one thing that, at least in North Carolina, we've done a better job with uh, trying to get more money into roads within the state. We've got the second largest road network of any state in the nation behind Texas, because unlike a lot of other states that took the roads from the counties and then gave them back after the Great Depression, we kept them. So we have, uh, we have all kinds of transportation challenges there, and we only have really one source of revenue, meaningful source of revenue in the gas tax. Uh, <clears throat> we're gonna have, I think we'll, we'll do the extension here and then come up with a permanent fix later on. Uh, Senator Hatch says he has a, a good solution and a way to pay for it. Um, we're looking forward to the uh, second half of that discussion. But, uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> again, when you provide, the, if you think about the economic impact <clears throat> that having sustainable and defined and long-term sources of revenue for infrastructure it will have a good, sustainable economic stimulus. That's why I think we have to spend the time to get it right, stop living paycheck to paycheck so that you can be a lot more strategic about your road building versus patch it here and patch it there. Um, and so I'm, I'm a big supporter of getting something done. It'll never be right. Everybody wants more roads. Tell everybody in North Carolina, we need more roads. We need more roads. We need more roads. And you need to cut that gas tax. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? Uh, but, but we also have to recognize that the gas tax is not a reliable long-term source of revenue for roads. We need to come up with a, alternative strategies. I, for one, think that uh, if you can accelerate some load, uh, roads through tolling. We, we passed a law in North Carolina that does not allow you to back toll an existing road corridor. If, however, you want to build additional lanes and have uh, hot lanes or have some other revenue source for it, we've got to look at it. Uh, I had a, down in North Carolina, we, uh, as a, in the legislature, we authorized a managed lane project <clears throat> right through my district. Almost 30 miles of roads 
that'll have two general purpose lanes and two hot lanes. And a lot of people don't realize it's not about just the source of revenue, it's how you manage traffic flow through some of these major urban corridors. It's not just about the revenue. It's a very different way of managing the flow. And if you want to see a real testament to coming up with different ways of managing the flow, take I-95 out of this place. And it's crazy. You just can't build enough lanes. If you don't come up with a different way to manage the flow and traffic patterns, then you just can never build enough lanes in these high growth urban centers. So we've got, to, we've got to work on getting the highway bill done, come up with a longer term fix, but also start looking at how we're going to backfill a declining source of revenue with a sustainable source of revenue, or we're always going to be having this discussion.